So I am so glad that the world didn't end and we could do this together. Um, and if you're like, what is he talking about? Today we're going to talk about the end times. We're in this series called What About? And what we've been exploring is that for so many of us, our faith has shifted dramatically. And it, part of that journey is beginning to understand what you don't think or what you don't believe or what opinions you don't hold anymore. But then there are all sorts of other things. Well, what about that? What do we do with those things? And we've been trying to respond to some of the questions you've been asking in this series. Next Sunday morning, we're doing the entire like sermon time is just going to be question and response. We'll take questions in the room. We'll take questions from the YouTube chat. And we'll just try to spend some time um, processing what has been raised for you in this series. And then would you all be up for another round of this later in the year with some other stuff? Would that be okay? Okay, the three of you, we're going to have so much fun. <laughs> later this year. It's going to be great. Um, so we'll do that later in the year because there's things like baptism and demons and um, people really want to talk about sex. Um, so I'll bring in somebody else for that. And then um, just so many other things that have popped up that I want. The afterlife was another one that I'm, um, people have been asking about. So uh, today though, I want to talk about the end times. And I think this is an important conversation for a couple reasons. One is everybody assumes, how, how many of you grew up under sort of the cloud of the end times, Jesus is coming back, the world's going to end, it's all going to go down soon? How many of you grew up with that? Oh, we really should have just brought some, like a therapist in today, <laughs> um, because it's like all of us. Um, and so here's, everybody assumes, because it seems to be the dominant position for lots of Christians, everybody assumes that that has just always been the Christian view. And it hasn't been. Actually, the whole idea of the end times, the way most of us were indoctrinated into it, is only a couple hundred years old. And it actually uh, isn't based on like rigorous study of scripture or tradition. It's actually based on a lot of stuff that like somebody had a dream. And in this dream, Jesus came back twice, like two times. It was just this whole thing. And it got publicized and blown up. And then suddenly everybody thinks, well, this is how it's always been. And it's just not how... It's always been. It's not how Christians have always seen it. And so the question often people ask is, are we living in the end times? Um, I'm going to answer that. I don't usually answer questions, but I'm going to answer that question at the end of the sermon. All right, so if you were going to check out, now you can't <laughs> because I left it on the hook there. Uh, when we talk about this, when we talk about end times stuff, we're talking about a, a branch of theology called eschatology. How many of you have heard the word eschatology before? It sort of sounds like a sneeze if you say it quickly. And it really comes from these two words in Greek, eschatos, which means last, and ology, which means the study of. It's the study of last things, the study of how things wrap up. And I want to begin just by giving you my experience, because for me, in my early development, the end times loomed large. Um, my grandfather was a Free Will Baptist pastor, and he was sort of, this was his area of really interest and focus. And I can remember growing up, we weren't really supposed to read books other than the Bible, and not just any Bible, the King James 1611, if it's good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for us, Bible. And, but there was an exception made when you were reading books about the end times. So growing up, like the idea of like Hal, Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, anybody remember that book? If you do, that means you're, you're probably middle-aged now. Um, congratulations. Um, but that book was really important, and, and certain preachers and TV preachers who really focused on the end times, and they would sort of construct this entire map of how history is going to go. And I grew up, I mean, that was 
everything. There were charts and there were diagrams and there were altar calls. And there was this whole thing that was about being ready because at any moment, at any moment, Jesus could come back. And then when I was at high school, they came up with these books called Left Behind. Woo! I can remember reading those books and just praying for my friends who were not going to make it. I was a little unnerved because apparently when Jesus takes you away in that big vacuum cleaner in the sky, you all go naked. Um, By the way, like, how do you know you've been raptured? Well, there's a pile of clothes. Um, So the options are you're streaking or you've been taken to heaven. Those are your options if that happens. And so, like, that was, I was so into that. And I recently was in a a discount bookstore and they had, like, the entire collection, multiple copies of Left Behind, and they were charging 10 cents each, and they're way overpriced. Um, but next time Greg Locke has a book burning, maybe we can make some suggestions on what he might want um, to do, do for that. And I, I remember not only was the emphasis on the end, but it was on the end in two ways. One, it was the emphasis on your end. Like at some point, the question always in every church service would come back to, if you died tonight. The night I went down front and prayed a prayer at a church service, a revival service, they didn't just say, if you died tonight. They actually said, Looking around this room, odds are somebody's going to die tonight. Y'all, there weren't that many people in the room. I just felt like I need to make sure. But the problem was the way I was raised, you couldn't make sure. Because even if you made the, prayed the prayer today, you could still die with some unconfessed sin and still go to hell forever. And so my options as a kid were maybe dying and going to hell forever because I forgot to confess something, or Jesus is going to come back and snatch us all away at any moment if you're ready. If you're not ready, you get left behind. And yet we all were taught to want it. We were taught to want the end to come. And no matter how bad it gets, that's a good thing because the world's got to get worse. Things have to be awful for Jesus to come back and make everything okay. And by make everything okay, it meant like take us to heaven and unleash like dragon lizards on the earth to destroy everything. And I actually was, uh, I may have told you this before, but I was at an appointment with my, I I see a sleep doctor because I've been, I've had um, trouble sleeping ever since I was a kid. And I never knew why. But then we were sitting in his office and he said, You've had trouble sleeping for years. Why do you think that might be? And it just hit me. I said, well, I was told my entire life that I was probably going to either die in my sleep with unconfessed sin or go to hell, or Jesus could come back at any moment, and if I didn't have everything lined up, I would get left behind and be tortured forever. And this doctor looks at me and goes, yeah, that'll do it. And even though you don't believe it anymore, it's the pattern. Is it, how many of you find yourselves, you don't even believe stuff anymore, but the shame and the fear still finds a way to creep back in because that stuff buries deep and it gets its tentacles wrapped all inside of you. And it's a process to untangle it. It's a constant reminder that God is with us. God is for us. God is on our side. I actually have one real vivid memory of um, being around 11 years old. And my mom was at the hospital with one of my grandparents and I was at home with dad, and any time I got me and dad were home together, something just happened. Something went wrong. Um, we'd lock our keys out of the house or truck or whatever, like just something would happen. In this particular, he said, I'm going to go take out the trash. And he went outside, and he was gone a long time. And I was like, where's, where's dad? And so I look out the front door, and there's the trash bag sitting in the yard, and he's nowhere to be found. And I immediately start screaming, come back! Come back! 
And now, like looking back, I imagine what people would have drove, driven, drived when they went by. I imagine what they would have seen is this like kid running around going, come back, come back. At the time, though, it was traumatic. And he'd just gone to visit another family member and neglected to tell me. But when you're told any moment in the twinkling of an eye, it's all going to be over. And if you're not right, you're left. And, And so... For me, being able to untangle this and deconstruct it and, and let it go has been, it's one, it's one of the earliest things I let go of. Uh, and I had to. Um, and I want to share some of those reasons why I had to let it go. Uh, I want to begin with this. End times theology transfer, transforms Jesus into a violent, vengeful, Caesar-like figure. The problem with end times theology is it turns Jesus into somebody Jesus never was and never would be. It turns Jesus into a violent monster. There's a kind of an infamous preacher who several years ago was giving a sermon and talking about how he doesn't... Um, I'll just read the quote. Here's what he says. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. <laughs> For those of you in our online community who didn't hear that, somebody just booed the quote, which is (laughs) entirely appropriate. It's boo-worthy, right? But do you realize that that lots and lots of people hold that view of Jesus? And that many of us come from that view of Jesus, which is to say he came the first time as a good guy. He came the first time preaching peace and love and compassion. He came the first time to be our friend and savior, the next time he comes, he's going to be mad, and he's going to be the judge, and he's going to make people bleed. And we often said it like this, Jesus came the first time as a lamb, but he'll come the second time as a lion, and tigers and bears, oh my. (laughs) Now, here's what's interesting. The problem with that statement, he came the first time as a lion, the lamb, he'll come the second time as a lion is that if you actually take the time to read the Bible, which lots of people who have deep opinions on it haven't done, if you take time to actually just read the text, do you know what the text, that comes from the book of Revelation, right, where Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you know what that text says, though? That text says that there's this moment where something's happening and the the, sort of the narrator is weeping because something's not going to, I'm not even going to go into all of it because that's not what we're here to do today. But... And he says, who can conquer and who can overcome and who can do this thing? And then it's sort of like the the spotlight shifts and it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the one who ever came and this is the one who can do it. But when the author looks at the lion of the tribe of Judah, the next line is, and I looked and I saw a lamb that had been slain. What Revelation is trying to say that what, what makes Jesus the lion is not that he came the first time as a lamb and now he's coming back to get vengeance. It's that true strength, true power, true courage doesn't look like Caesar or like the version of Jesus that this particular pastor um, wants to follow. That it actually looks like a lamb who was slain. That's what strength is. That's what power is. That's what courage is. There's this powerful line at the end of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus dies There's a Roman centurion standing at the cross who looks at Jesus and says, surely this was God's son. 
What did he mean? Surely this is the second person of the Trinity who pre-existed from all creation. Nope, that hadn't been invented yet. It's hundreds of years away. What does he mean? Did you know in Jesus' world there was already somebody filling the role of God's son, and it was the Roman emperor? And here you have a Roman soldier. It's brilliant on Mark's part. You have a Roman soldier looking at a crucified, defeated, peasant Jewish rabbi and saying, that's power. That's strength. What Caesar is doing in Rome is not how the world gets better. This, this Jesus is how the world gets better. Great preacher Fred Craddock said, many people are obsessed with the second coming because deep down they were really disappointed with the first one. Isn't that just so true? So often what we've done is we've crafted a Jesus in our image. We've, we've put an American flag on him and we've said that this is our guy. He just happens to be okay with bombing who we want to bomb, with harming who we want to harm, with colonizing where we want to colonize. Without ever asking, is this actually the Jesus we meet in the pages of scripture and in the, test, in the lives and the testimony of the people who followed him and knew him and engaged with him. And so I think partly the problem with left behind end times theology is it just transforms Jesus into somebody he wasn't. Second, I think end times theology insists on divine and human violence, that divine and human violence and disaster are the only path and future for humanity. And this matters because this particular theology, beginning in the early 80s, began to influence the foreign policy of the United States of America. This particular theology began to influence how we choose to engage with other nations around the world. And when you believe that the, there has to be violence and conflict and war in the Middle East for Jesus to come back and take you away, you begin making policies that create violence in the Middle East so that Jesus will come back and take you away. Because you don't have to worry about the fallout because you're getting out of here. And that has been dictating, not, not in every administration, but in many administrations, that has been dictating our foreign policy. And it's important to say that actually... This is not the only path forward. You mean to tell me that I'm supposed to believe that God's ways are not my ways, that they're higher ways and better ways, and the best way God can see fit to resolve the problems in the world is just blow it up? Like that's the best God can do? The wise creator, the best God can do is like, yeah, we should probably just have people kill each other until there's nobody left. I just don't think that's a very good vision for humanity. And I don't think that's the only option. I do not believe that disaster and violence and cataclysm are the only ways forward for us as a species. And when you adopt this model, you are fated to conflict. You are fated to violence. You are fated to bombs dropping. And I actually just think there's a better way. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Third, I, one of the major problems is end times theology is grounded in exclusivism and Christian supremacy. Because guess who the only people who get to participate in the future in this particular worldview, this particular theological lens? It's not just Christians, it's Christians who have believed a certain thing. Right? Because I'm, like, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you, not, like I remember growing up, not everybody was going to get in. Catholics were out. Methodists were iffy. <laughs> right? We didn't even know what Episcopalians were. <laughs> but they were probably out too. 
And for all the grief people give the Church of Christ for this belief that they're the only ones going to make it, Southern Baptists and Free Will Baptists, we were kind of similar. Like sometimes we would believe, like, God may let them in, but they're going to be shamed for all eternity for barely getting in. Right? And it just creates this thing where only Christianity matters and only a version of Christianity matters and only Christians matter and that God really is sort of only on the side of people who have believed the right thing as if anybody knows what that is. And what that discounts is imagine putting all this out and saying, here's my beliefs about the end times. Only me and people like me are going to Imagine sitting down with a person who you are just getting to know and they're a really terrific human being and then at the end of laying this out, they go, oh my gosh, do you know that I'm Muslim? Where do I fit into your new heavens and new earth? Oh my gosh, I'm Buddhist. Where do I fit in? I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. I'm a Christian that's not wearing the exact same label you are. Where do I fit in into your vision of the future? It seems like I'm just like, I'm, I'm not even sort of like a, a, a standing character. It seems like I'm just background noise. And I think it's possible to be deeply, committedly Christian. I, no matter what people tell me, I am one. I am Christian because I say so. And will be, I think, until the day I die. It's possible, though, to be Christian, to love your faith, to love Jesus, and to not be hostile toward other religions and other traditions and other viewpoints. It's possible to say, this is the particular lens through which I've come to see the world. It's not the only lens. It's not necessarily a better lens than what somebody else is doing. Because what ultimately matters is how we show up in the world. And there are lots and lots of Christians who show up in the world and try to destroy it. And then there are lots and lots of people of other traditions or no tradition who show up and try to leave it better than they found it. And so I think it's just important to name that it it can be really easy to end up in a, a, a Christian exclusivist supremacy sort of space that I think is making the world worse. And I hope that when I show up with my deep convictions and love of Jesus and somebody else shows up with their deep convictions and love of their tradition or how they see the world, I hope there's, we actually have so much in common because of how we're holding these things that we can make the world better together. I do not want a future where everybody believes just like me, looks just like me. I want a future that is diverse in every possible way and every single beautiful thing about humanity is represented. And so end times theology just doesn't provide that. And it actually reinforces some pretty ugly things. And, and then fourth, end times theology depends on a patchwork reading of the Bible. It just, it reads the Bible wonky in ways the Bible was never intended to be read. Every time I think about end times theology, and I grew up in it, uh, so I, I, know this, I know how you're supposed to bounce around from like the Gospels to Ezekiel to Revelation to Daniel to this random verse in one prophet we'd never heard of before. Like, I, I know. There's like, and every time I think about it, um, there's this one meme that comes to mind that I'd like to show you. <laughs> uh, anybody watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia? You're willing to own it publicly? Okay, a couple of you. Um, yeah, this is from that show, but it's, that's what I think of. It's like this, just desperately trying to make connections and, and reading the Bible without any sense of context, without any sense of what was going on when the, this text was actually written. Because at, when the prophets were writing, the Hebrew prophets, they were not predicting things 700 years in the future, much less 2,000 years in the future. They were speaking truth to power, and they were speaking about what was right in front of them. 
And when Christians went back and reread them in light of their Jesus experience, they began to see other things in them. And, and I think that's okay as long as we understand that's not what they originally meant. And that's, they weren't actually speaking about the end of things for us. They were talking about things they were facing in their own day, in their own time, in their own moment. And it also fails to understand the genre of scripture. You, you know, the Bible has genre. Like if you go into a library or you go into a, they even make video rental stores anymore where you get VCR tapes to take home and put in your VCR player. Is that even a thing anymore? But when you go into a place, like when you go onto Netflix, like here's the thing, you kind of know the difference, right? Even if the word genre is not a thing you use on a regular basis, you know the difference between a, a movie um, that is called The Notebook and the movie um, Die Hard which is a great Christmas film, <laughs> but different than The Notebook. Like when you watch the movie Die Hard, you don't go, I'm going to sit down and watch a documentary this evening. And you're sort of going like, wow, this really happened? No, it's an action-adventure movie. It's different. And when we come to the Bible and we read everything the same, what we're failing to understand is there are all sorts of different genres. There's music, there's song, there's poetry, there's parable. There's all sorts of stuff in there. And when we just treat it all the same, we're actually not only um, ignoring, we're actually doing violence to what the authors were trying to do. We're, we're taking this beautiful art that they've created to inspire us, and we're turning it into something that they never could have imagined. And the genre that m most often gets interpreted as talking about the end of the world is something called apocalyptic literature. Anybody heard of that? It was, it was sort of a newish genre um, Jewish genre um, in, you know, just before, you know, a couple centuries before Jesus, and it was sort of a new thing. There are actually, there's, there are sort of like uh, conventions, some, maybe some tropes of that kind of literature. One would be that it's written to people who are suffering, right? It's written to people who are suffering. Uh, it, it, the word apocalypse, by the way, doesn't mean the end of the world. Do you know what it means? It means unveiling. So apocalypse is a word that simply means we're pulling back the curtain and we're going to see how things actually are. Because in these texts, they're writing to people who are suffering for doing good. And what the authors are trying to do is say, look, I know it seems like God isn't around and God doesn't have your back and it seems like everything's falling apart and you want to give up and you want to throw in the towel. It would be easier to compromise. But look, behind the scenes, God is up to something. So hang on, don't give up, stay faithful. And it focuses on hope and deliverance. Like, this is how it is now, but someday God is going to rescue. And it's full of highly symbolic and coded language. Like, when people go to the book of Revelation, like, yeah, those are helicopters and nuclear bombs. No, 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 no. There's something way different going on. This is symbolic language. And I'll just walk through. There are three examples of this in the Bible, in the, in the Protestant canon. The first is the book of Daniel. Anybody ever read the book of Daniel? The lion's den, that sort of thing. Uh, the book of Daniel, actually, it's set during the Babylonian captivity, but it was actually written, scholars think, um, in the 160s during a time of oppression where the, the Jewish people were being oppressed by a Greek dynasty known as the Seleucids or Seleucids, people say it different ways, and a king named Antiochus IV. Antiochus wanted everybody to become Greek, and so he went in with the idea, we're going to eradicate everything that makes uh, Jewish people unique. So we're going to outlaw circumcision. We're going to outlaw their dietary restrictions. We're going to make them like us. 
And the book of Daniel is written to people who are going through that. And you can see why if you go read the stories in the book of Daniel, stories about not eating certain foods, stories about praying even when you're going to be thrown to the lions, right? All of this stuff is written to people suffering saying, don't give up. God hasn't forgotten you. And actually, God is working toward leaving these beastly empires behind and creating a real human kind of kingdom. Then you come to the book of Mark, chapter 13. And there's Matthew and Luke sort of parallel this in 24 and 21. But Mark 13 is known as the little apocalypse in scholarship. Um, And because Revelation is the big apocalypse. But Mark 13 is sort of this, Jesus and his disciples are talking, and he's talking to them about a difficult time that's coming, about the end of the age. Not the end of the world, the end of the age. And he starts talking to them about not one stone of this temple will be left standing on another. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. All, it, literally, kind of all hell is going to break loose in the world. Right? And so that's in Mark 13. You know what Jesus was talking about? And it's likely that this was written after the events actually happened. Jesus is warning about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's warning about if we take up violent arms against the Romans, the Romans will come in and they'll destroy us. And every single stone of this temple that we think is so um, marvelous and majestic, all of these stones will be left in a pile in a heap of rubble. And then you come to the book of Revelation. How many of you ever read that one? How many of you ever tried it before bed? You didn't sleep for six years. Look, the book of Revelation was written to some Christians in a place called Asia Minor who were suffering, being persecuted. And the book of Revelation is written as a way of, it's written about Babylon again, but it's actually about Rome. And the writer is offering hope and encouragement to people who are suffering for their faith. Suffering because they're resisting the empire, they're offering an alternative way, they're gathering in communities, they're sharing their food, they're sharing their resources, they're offering a different way to be human in the world, and it's threatening the empire and the empires after them. And one of my favorite lines from that entire book happens at the end, where there's this vision of a new heaven and a new earth. How many of you heard that one before? It's actually not invented by this writer. It's, he's, he's sort of, copyright didn't exist. He's borrowing from Isaiah. And he's, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And it suddenly hit me the other day why that's important. Why not just rehab this heaven and this earth? But if you think about maybe what the writer's saying is, we need such a radical break from the way things are that we can't rehabilitate this. We cannot rehabilitate empire. We do not need Christian empire. We need a new heaven and a new earth. We need a place where empire doesn't exist. A place where enoughness for everyone is how things are. We need a radical break. We we do not need to reform empire. We need to show empire the door and create a different way of being human together in community in this world. I think that's the vision of the book of Revelation. And that if if we stay doing what Jesus taught us, that's where this goes. We keep sharing, we keep loving, we keep serving, we keep giving ourselves away to one another. And eventually that's where this goes. So did did Jesus' followers think the end was going to come? It seems like it, didn't it? Have you read the New Testament? Paul seems to talk about an end coming. Um, Yes, the the people who followed Jesus, the earliest people, believed the end was going to come at any moment. And they were 1,000% right. It did. If they had a theme song, it should have been, it's the end of the world as we know it. Because that's what they're writing about. Not the end of the world, but the end of the world as they knew it. When the temple fell and Jerusalem was destroyed, the world they knew ended. 
Just like on 9-11, when those planes hit the towers in the Pentagon, the world as we knew it ended. And we woke up on September 12th in a completely different world, didn't we? Woke up in a completely different world. Now take that and times it by almost infinity for them. And you'll understand what they were writing about. They were predicting the end to come, and it did. It came in the year 70. It was in their future. It is in our past. So what does that mean for us? Are we living in the end times? You all ready for the answer? You stuck it out. Are you ready? Here you go. We're, are we living in the end times? Only if we choose to be. Because barring an asteroid, at the end of the day, that is not up to God, that is up to us. How will we live in the world? The Bible does not predict an end of the world as much as it presents us with options about where this thing could go. It lets us know when we look back at our spiritual ancestors sharing their experiences through times of difficulty, times of suffering, times of pain, times where they chose violence and everything came crashing down on them. When we look at those stories, we can realize, oh my gosh, this is not divinely dictated. This is humanly chosen. And the only way the world ends tomorrow is if we choose to put our finger on the button and push it. Or we can choose to do something else. We can choose to show up in the world differently. We could be. The, the people who run the, the clock, you know, the end, time, like the end of the world clock, have you seen this? Scientists who do that. They keep putting us closer and closer to midnight. It's encouraging. <laughs> but do you know why they keep moving it? It's not because of stuff God's doing. It's because of stuff we're doing. Nuclear weapons. And a growing willingness to use them. Climate change running rampant. All a global health crisis, a pandemic that not everybody has taken seriously since day one. All sorts of things are moving that closer. I think we can actually live in ways that move it farther away. I refuse to believe we are on a collision course with the end unless we just want to be on a collision course with the end. I'm going to quote Martin Luther real quick, and that's rarely ever going to happen. So if you're a Luther person, um, I have questions, but I'm going to go ahead and quote him. Luther said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. I love that. I'd still plant my... There's, there's a certain defiance and hope in that, right? In the face of what seems like insurmountable odds and challenges, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to plant seeds... For a tree. And by the way, when you plant a tree, it doesn't feed you immediately. When you plant a tree, you're thinking long-term growth. You're thinking this thing's going to be around a while. The kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids, the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids. It's a defiant, hopeful act, planting something. And we do face challenges that threaten our shared survival. We, do, we face challenges that are so grounded in violence and we're talking on a global scale, what's happening right now with Russia um, attacking Ukraine, and what that could lead to all around the world. I think most of us have been walking around nervous about World War III. Anybody else been nervous about World War III? But then just last night in Sacramento, there was a shooting. People were killed because of the addiction to guns in this country, the addiction to violence. Does it have to be that way? Climate's definitely changing. 
Who's glad um, to be living now, if you're here in Nashville area, who's glad to be living in the new Tornado Alley? It's happening, right? Climate is shifting. And it's effect- I know we have folks from the Midwest or from, the- I don't even know if it's the Midwest, but it's over that way um, on the map. And I know you all are like, yes, we don't have as many tornadoes, but it's coming. The climate is changing. And we may have made some, some mistakes and created some damage we can't undo, but do we, have to keep, do we have to put the pedal to the metal on this thing, or can we go the other way? Can we make different decisions? We're living through, still living through a global health crisis, a pandemic. And I feel like in some ways we've learned very few lessons since we began. Because all the lessons we were sort of learning is like, it's okay to have some downtime. It's okay to not be busy all the time. It's okay, maybe everything's not about money. Maybe like we're learning all these things and it's like now, okay, let's forget all that stuff and go back to business as usual. Maybe business as usual is what's killing us. Do we have to do that? Or can we start planting apple trees? In the face of these challenges, can we begin planting seeds, trusting that if we water them and tend them, that they will grow and will outlast us and will feed and nourish generations to come? And so my hope is, in the face of every one of these challenges, that we will be defiantly hopeful people who in every way we can begin planting apple seeds. I don't know what that looks like for you. But I bet if you think about, like, what would my apple tree be? If the world was going to pieces tomorrow and I was going to plant this, what would it be? That might be your contribution to this thing. The thing that comes to mind when you think, well, it's all going it's, it's to go to pieces tomorrow, so I better grab a shovel. I got some planting to do. Whatever the thing is that pops into your mind that you would plant that would grow and would help the world, maybe you should lean into that. Because maybe that's where our future, maybe that's our salvation, maybe that's the way out of this mess we've created. Are we living in the end times? I refuse to live in the end times. We're living in some dark times. But all is not lost, and I'm going to plant some apple trees. Are you with me? Let's pray.